All right, welcome, welcome to the Mormon Nutritionist. This episode is going to be a little bit different, and actually, the next three are going to be a little bit different. We've got Blade Hargis is a uh, well. I'll introduce him a little bit later, but I'll be interviewing him over the next three episodes, just about how faith has influenced his journey in the medical field. We kept him a little bit shorter so that you guys could still listen to him in about the same time frame and just catch up on him whenever you had a twenty minutes or so. But thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Y'all are listening to the Mormon Nutritionist. I should say that this podcast is not intended to be individualized medical advice. As always, please consult with a medical professional in your area to make sure that your medical history is taken into account to make sure that you get the best care possible. So this is the Mormon Nutritionist Podcast, where faith, food, and science meet, and I am your host, registered dietitian nutritionist, Zach Cordell, and uh, we're going to be talking the next little while with Blade Hargis. Now, Blade is a recent graduate from BYU. Congratulations. Thank you. He is also an incoming medical student at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. So kind of a big deal, or soon to be a little bit. Maybe, right? Maybe, maybe. Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of things today. Uh, we'll talk about type 1 diabetes because that is something that is close to the heart of Blade, which I'll let him discuss that a little bit with you. Uh, we'll talk about what type 1 is and how faith has had an influence on Blade's approach to medicine. All right, so Blade, do you mind go ahead and giving a little background on who you are other than the graduate and the new med student? All that stuff, yeah. So I was born and raised in a little town in Arkansas, a little northwest corner of Arkansas, a little town called Pea Ridge. Um, I'm the oldest of eight. Uh, my father's a convert to the church, and my mother grew up in like your Mormon household with a loving mom and a loving dad and went to church. And so I got a really interesting view of faith from two vastly different spectral areas because my mom was very much on one end and my dad growing up was very much on the other. Did you have pioneer heritage on your mom's side? You know what's interesting is my mother did not have pioneer heritage. My great grandmother I believe was the first convert but my father's side has pioneer heritage. All right. Thomas C. Griggs he's written a couple of the hymns. He was my great 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 grandfather I believe on my father's side. And your dad was a convert. And my dad was a convert. So when the Great Depression <laughs> hit, my grandmother was a, was a girl. She got sent off to so that they could survive and eat. And when she came back, her mother's her mother. So her father had died, and her mother remarried a Pentecostal. Mm. And so that's where the break happened. That's a crazy story. No, so like we have handwritten documents from Thomas C. Griggs when he's like, yeah, so Brigham Young just told us to go across the plains, so we're packing up and moving. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. All right, so going back, sorry to interrupt. You, small town, northwest Arkansas, mm-hmm. family, faith background. Yeah. All right, what else about you? I love being active. Health is a, health is, we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but 
Um, it's a big thing for me. I, so I'm a type one diabetic. That's why it's so close to home. And I got it when I was six for me to enjoy life. I had to learn how to take control of my life both on a nutrition stance and a faith stance and a, a working stance. And I had to learn that I had to be my own master if I wanted to be able to enjoy life with this chronic disease. And so from the, from an early, early age, um, I feel like I was thrust into a very different world when it comes to just living every day to day life. Okay. So you mentioned type one though. Yes. Can you explain what type one diabetes is? Yes. So type one and type two often get misconstrued. It's funny. One of the number one things that people say is, oh, you're a diabetic, but you're not fat. And my grandma has that kind of diabetes. So type one is vastly different than type two. Type two is more, more insulin resistance. You're still making it. Your body just doesn't respond like it's supposed to. Where type one, my body has attacked a part of my pancreas that makes the insulin it's autoimmune. So it's seen the beta cells, which is what makes insulin. It's seen those cells and said, Hey, those are bad and it's killed them. So my body doesn't produce any insulin at all. And so I can respond to it. So when I eat, I take insulin injections, my body still responds to it. I just don't make any of it. Right. So with type two, it used to be adult onset diabetes, right? So it was going to be with yeah. older individuals. It was a lifestyle disease. There is a genetic component to it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a family history of type two, then you may have an increased risk yeah. of developing type two if you have the same lifestyle behaviors, right? Whereas type one, type one, like you have no control over whether or not you get it. It just kind of happens, uh -huh. but it also is a lot harder to manage. I kind of tell my students, one of them is like walking a tightrope over a pool. And one of them is like walking a tightrope off of like a skyscraper. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. That's a good analogy. Type two, it, like you're not going to go, it's not going to be as bad as fast. Yeah. Where type one, it, it can move pretty quick as to what's going on. And in many regards, you can reverse type two. If you, if you start, they get pre-diabetes, a lot of type two, it isn't just like you're non-diabetic and then you are. Right. They get like, pre-diabetes where they're like, ah, things are looking a little fishy. Maybe you should cut back on the ice cream at night. Maybe we should go on a walk with our family. Yeah. Maybe we should just do something a little different to kind of prevent it from happening. Yeah, but type one, it's like night and day. One day you're fine, the next day you're like, why am I sick all of a sudden? And it just kind of happens. Right. And you said that you got diagnosed when you were six, right? I was or six eight. years old. Yeah, six. Okay. And so when you're diagnosed, you don't know what that is, right? Well, I kind of did. Um, my father's a type 1 diabetic as well. Oh, okay. And so what was interesting is I had the warning signs. I sort of wet in the bed, and I never in my entire life had problems wetting the bed. That just never happened. I was constantly lethargic. I was drinking water all the time. And my dad kind of had an inkling, also being a nurse. He's kind of like, hey, he's acting a little bit like I did when I was diagnosed. And so they checked my sugar in the middle of the night, and, of course, it was – super high or really high blood sugar and off we went to the hospital and with my six-year-old mind i was told that the little men in dad's body didn't work which <laughs> is why he was sick uh -huh. to take shots and so i remember sitting in the, at the desk where everybody's taking your insurance information and stuff and my dad was holding me and he said well buddy the little men in your body aren't working either and I remember that distinct line of when I realized, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to be more like my dad. Yeah, that's tough. 
yeah it was a it was quite the transition it was i don't remember a lot of it but um there's a there's some really important lessons that i really feel like diabetes has been my greatest teacher and after man i've had it for 19 years at this point it's it has been my greatest blessing it's been my hardest trial and my greatest blessing all in the same sure path. well i mean it's like uh on your mission you you go on your mission it's the hardest thing you've ever done and it's the best thing you've ever done exactly so so that's like a little bit of background on you but now how did you get from where you are in northwest arkansas to graduating from byu to now going to minneapolis to be at the mayo clinic why medicine why medicine so it's a interestingly enough i don't want to do endocrinology i don't want to do the type of medicine that takes care of diabetics but when i as i grew up i went through all sorts of rebellious stages i hit the point where i was like last thing i wanted to do was take insulin shots so i just stopped taking them and i lied a lot of time like i'm checking my sugar i really wasn't checking my sugar and when there was cherry cheese danishes in the stinking fridge, well, <laughs> heck, I found them and I hid. I ran up to our room and I ate them. And I was, I was super rebellious. But with that comes a lot of bad blood sugars and feeling sick all the time and yada, da, da, da. And I learned as I kind of grew up going through this rebellious stage and working with Dr. Moss, who's my personal, my personal endocrinologist, we figured it out. And I remember shifting from this whole like feeling sick all the time but being rebellious and just hating the fact that I had diabetes to learning how much control I could have over it and how much I could still enjoy life and not feel like garbage all the time and so I remember that transition and so that that was kind of the first inkling I was like maybe medicine's my thing and I wanted to specifically work with kids because I had been there I had done that I I had a unique perspective I felt where I wasn't just yeah. learning to deal with the patients. I was the patient and I knew what kids felt like when they looked at a illness and they had no idea what it was going to be like and they weren't going to be normal compared to their other friends. And their mom is crying over in the corner because of this new diagnosis. Exactly. And I understood in a very real sense what it was like to hurt and hate and cry and feel like the world and God was picking on me. But then I also knew the distinct difference of when you work with a good physician who cares for you and loves you and wants you to be a better person, I then knew what it was like to live life to the fullest with a chronic illness instead of letting that chronic illness be my life. No, that, and that's a huge distinction. Yeah, it's, it's massive. It was the turning point for me because I became, I went from, being prone to my circumstances to controlling my circumstances. Yeah. And so that was a, the big transition where I was like, you know, because I've had, and I've seen both ends of the spectrum, I feel like I could really connect with kids. So I was like, I want to be a physician and work with kids. Well, as I started following doctors and shadowing them, I realized I don't like the clinic all that much. I'm like, <laughs> I, I very much more like the hospital. I like scrubs. I like being in there and get my hands dirty um, in a sterile sense. Not, the doctors <laughs> in the hospital have very clean hands. Don't they need to have clean hands. Yeah, Trust so me. so it's scrub in and scrub out for like five. Oh yeah, minutes. so it, they're not dirty. But I liked that <laughs> aspect of the hospital, and so I was like, okay, so that's probably going to lead me to surgery if it's dealing with kids. Most kids aren't in the hospital unless there's need for surgery. 
And then the final kind of culminating thing that led me to the field that I want to pursue is my littlest sister um, who was born during my mission has Down syndrome. Yeah. And with that, there comes all sorts of issues. And one of her big issues was she had a couple cardiac issues that required some pediatric cardiac thoracic surgeries. Now, what does that mean for somebody that doesn't speak medicalese? So cardiac, your heart, thoracic is chest cavity, so lungs, heart, that area. Um, Peds, pediatrics is children. Um, And so there's a specific doctor that works on the heart and chest area in children as a surgeon. Okay. And so she had a couple malfunctions in her little kid heart that is typical of kids with Down syndrome that needed surgery to fix. And so I got exposed to pediatric thoracic surgery um, through my sister. And again, a unique perspective because I was older, I was matured um, a little bit, but I was able to see what that physician did for my family. Yeah. I was able to see my mom and dad who were at the lowest lows. When you have a kid that's about to die and Abigail came very close to passing on to the other side multiple times. It really shakes you to your core and brings you to your knees. But that doctor was a tool in God's hands to keep our family whole. And sometimes it doesn't turn out that way, but in this instance, it did. And I could see myself with that perspective and wanting to work with kids, that being the only thing that seemed like it would really fulfill my desire to help others. And so that's kind of what I'm pursuing is pediatric heart surgery. Okay, that's awesome. All right. So real quick, let me just ask, what does it mean to you to have a a prophet that's a physician? A prophet that's a physician? Hmm. Um, I love it because I think usually the more sciencey you get, the less God is present in the world. Science kind of disproves God in the world, and that's kind of like the world's approach. But here God has placed someone who is at the top of their field in science. Like this guy figured out open heart surgery. Like this guy worked on the artificial heart. If there's anybody that knows stuff about the heart, it was President Nelson. And in order to understand the heart, you've got to understand science. Yeah. So this guy is like the cream of the crop when it comes to science, but he's also the cream of the crop when it comes to God on earth. He understands God on a very intimate and different level. And so I think it's cool almost a symbolic representation that God is like, listen, in these last days when everybody's trying to disprove me, know now that I am more alive or I am just as alive as I've ever been in the world. Yeah. I think it's super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I, it's a, it's always interesting to think about what the the prophets have done in the past for their careers Uh and then to, uh, to think how that plays into how they view the world too. Yeah, no, it's sweet. You talked before about how you, you had good physicians and that helped you to know that you want to be a good physician that helps with family and doesn't just go in, do the job and kind of sign off and say, I'm out for the night. But what, what role does faith have in what you've done Yeah, and why you've chosen this? I find it a really interesting kind of dynamic that we disprove God through science. I am 100% in the opposite camp on this one. Yeah. I feel like the more and more I've learned science, the more and more I've seen God in it. For example, I want to share one of the coolest examples. So 
when a woman is preparing um, to be able to get pregnant, she ovulates and the egg comes out of the ovary and it goes down the fallopian tube and it gets ready to be fertilized. But what's interesting is that there's a little structure that kind of houses the egg. It's like the little shell to the egg. And once the egg gets spit out, it's called the corpus luteum. And this structure secretes, it spits out the hormones that keep everything alive enough for the egg to get fertilized. Yeah. And when the egg gets fertilized, it's got this window where this little corpus luteum is spitting out what it needs to survive. It gives it a window to where it can get where it needs to in the uterus, implant, and set up its own hormone-secreting organs to keep everything alive. Now, when the egg doesn't get fertilized, two weeks later, the woman goes through her menstrual cycle and she has her period. But during that two-week window, the leftover little shell keeps everything alive. Yeah. And ready to be fertilized. And if it gets fertilized, egg sets up its own little factory of hormone secreting organs and it keeps everything alive and a girl doesn't go through a period for nine months and then you have a baby. Now, when you think about the intricate details of that, right. just, oh my goodness, that <laughs> God took a structure that is housing the egg and then turned it into the saving grace to keep that egg alive until it can get fertilized. That literally nothing is wasted from the moment of conception to birth, that everything has a purpose. You can't tell me that there's not divine intervention in that system. Yeah. That this little leftover corpus luteum, luteum is used to keep that egg viable until it can become life. That's incredible. And Little things like that are littered in the medical field. It, it is the medical field. That's the whole thing. And as you get closer into it, you see that there's like so many intricate de details that you, you can't ignore it. No. But you can if you're always too busy asking another question mm -hmm. or whatever. If, and that's what happens in the world, right? Is a lot of people just kind of get lost in their own yeah. pride and their own uh, ego, really. And, and it blinds them from the ability to see god's hand in all of these things no it it i i challenge people if you're having a lack of faith in god if you're struggling with the faith that he's really there open up a physiology textbook and tell me he's not there your body is the most incredible creation known to man and it wasn't happenstance that it works the way it does yeah and so yeah if yeah it, it's incredible I hope I'm not getting over overexcited, but man, no. it just like bears down to my soul. Like God is there and you just have to, you just have to look at those fine details to realize that, man, he's there. Well, even whenever it's not the fine details, right? You think about Laman and Lemuel, whenever they saw an angel, they saw the stuff, right? They had personal uh -huh. experiences with these things that with everyone else, they're like, if I saw an angel, I'd be set for life. Yeah. Right. And if you understood the, the like the way that a woman becomes pregnant, you could be set for life. Oh, but that's yeah. why you have to continue to go back to the Lord and allow him to let the spirit rest on you to, to build your testimony. Yeah. Uh, just another quick example, just if people don't really connect with corpus luteums and 
yeah, it can be a little much, but but like even when it comes to development, you think you got one little sperm and one little egg, and they have they have part of mom and part of dad, and it hits in there, and all of a sudden these two cells, somewhere down the line, one cell's like, dude, I gotta be an eye, right? And the other one's like, well, I gotta be a tooth, and the other one's like, I'm gonna be a toe, <laughs> like they gotta figure that out, and so we don't have like teeth growing on our knees and we don't have fingers growing on our ears the fact that we can take two cells these two little cells that like look nothing like a human and then it grows into a functioning human that works for 90 to 100 years just beyond me that it works but it does so this has been episode one of our interview with blade hargis uh, be sure to che- check out our next episode where we'll be talking a little bit more about how his, um, his run in the church will influence his approach to medicine and practice. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Zach Cordell RDM. Hope you've enjoyed and uh, hope you hear some more soon.